I'm Vicky Mochama, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. Women's rights are human rights, right? That's the saying. But just because you say something, it doesn't make it true. According to the United Nations, gender inequality continues to hold women back. The Canadian Women's Foundation says that 1.9 million Canadian women are low income. This means they are struggling to cover their basic needs, food, utilities, clothing, dental care, and so on. Adding to that is the fact that women carry the burden of domestic labor in their households. They're often working three hours to every single hour that a man works in the home. If you are a working woman, you have a very long working day. In Canada, women are 20% more likely to experience violence than Canadian men. Indigenous women are three times more likely to face violence than non-Indigenous women. Bisexual and lesbian women also face violence at three times the rate of straight women. Location also matters. If you live in the territories, you are eight times more likely to be victimized than women living in the provinces. When given a choice, no one would choose a life that is unfair, violent, and poor. And yet, far too many women live exactly that life. The stats are depressing, but they're unsurprising. It doesn't have to be this way. On this episode, we are focusing on SDG goal number five, which is all about achieving gender equality and empowering women and girls. In Canada, women represent a little over 50% of our population. How did we get so bad at addressing problems that affect half of us? And what do we need to do to improve the lives of the girls who will be women in 2030? Paulette Sr. is the president and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation, based in Toronto. She has dedicated her career to tackling the challenges that hold girls and women back. To get a fuller picture of where our country is actually headed when it comes to gender equality, I spoke to Paulette over the phone. I would say that the picture is improving from what we have been experiencing in the past uh, over a decade or so. We have a federal government that has finally been paying some attention to the subject of uh, gender equality, whether we're talking about issues of of violence against women, uh, recognizing care and domestic work, shared responsibility within the household, promoting women's leadership in public life, ensuring access to sexual reproductive health and rights, or addressing income inequality. So we're finally having some focus on these areas. It hasn't yet been organized or structured in a way that we'll see sort of a systematic advancement. But my hope is that we'll start to see a much more structured approach going forward. Paulette is right. In 2015, the Trudeau government came in with a strong feminist set of policies. And when it comes to childcare, foreign affairs, and representation, they've put their money where their mouth is. But I asked Paulette if there are other things that Canada can do better when it comes to addressing and improving gender equality. We can actually decide that finally it is time to create a national uh, action plan on violence against women. We haven't seen the stats of whether it be femicide or incidents of violence against women decreased in years. She makes an interesting point. The best data that we have on femicide comes from the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability. 
Femicide describes the violence experienced by women and girls who have been killed precisely because they are women and girls. The Canadian Femicide Observatory publishes an annual report. Their data is pulled from news reports, which, according to the organization, are often more reliable than official police data. That means we have a patchwork of information that relies on for-profit media companies. We all know information is power, and our governments can't create an action plan without better information. Paulette believes that a national child care program is important in ensuring there's a greater balance in the workplace and the home. In countries like Finland and Sweden, national child care programs mean that not only do more women work, but fewer women are living in poverty with their children. Sweden is basically the gold standard of national child care. Facing a labor shortage in the 1960s, they made a lot of moves to get women in the workforce. In 1975, for example, the country provided 525 hours of free preschooling. In just under two decades, labor force participation by women increased from 59.3% in 1970 to 81.7% in 1988. And they didn't stop there. Sweden continues to innovate on childcare, which not only helps women, but increasingly more men. Here in Canada, to make sure that no woman is left behind, Paulette recommends a GBA plus approach. But what is GBA plus? It stands for Gender Based Analysis Plus. And it's a tool that people like Paulette are asking policymakers to use. What does it mean? Let's break it down. Let's say you and I are at the beginning of a race, lined up with other racers, and the starting gun fires. Now, I don't like running, but let's go with it. You just found out about the race, but I've been training for weeks. It's not fair to you, but I, I'm going to win. In the race for equality, some women start way ahead, while others are still trying to tie up their shoelaces. And in some cases, there's an invisible hand that keeps untying those laces. For black women, indigenous women, women with disabilities, queer women, senior women, rural women, it's not a race they can win. That's what GBA Plus tackles. Gender-Based Analysis Plus is a tool that says gender is a starting point from which we can understand how policies impact people, and that there are other factors like race, age, ability, and more. For example, instead of making parental leave policies that are just about women, GBA Plus asks policymakers to study and understand how different women experience parenthood. It's about looking at the race, the race course, the athletes in it, and making a plan that works for as many people as possible. It's a tool that, if it's used well, can have a huge impact. But Paulette says you can't have a tool that people in power don't know how to use. I asked her what needs to be done to make GBA Plus a viable tool. The fact that the government has highlighted the need for a GBA Plus approach in policy and program development and implementation is important. And how we go about establishing a GBA Plus approach and framework is that we recognize that different people start at different starting lines in terms of their ability to access power and resources, those with more privilege are at the front, starting with men and white men in particular, and those with less privilege, such as women with disabilities, indigenous women, women of color, etc. They're starting way back of that starting line. We need to first level that playing field by investing appropriately in order to seriously impact the barriers that they're facing. Those who are facing uh, greater poverty are those who have less access. 
it's cultural because we're still living in a sexist society. We're still experiencing a lack of representation in terms of women who are decision makers in positions of power. In the cabinet, we have an equal balance of men and women, but we're not seeing that replicated elsewhere. We have decision makers in senior bureaucrat positions who don't really understand what is meant by GBA+. They really don't understand what the issues are for rural and northern women who are experiencing isolation and violence within that. And they really don't understand issues that LGBTQ, non-binary folks, women with disabilities are experiencing. If they are the decision makers about these issues, then those who will benefit in terms of gender are women and probably privileged women, women who don't have many barriers except for their gender, and therefore are set up to actually experience the greatest benefits from these policy decisions. Paulette gave us a wider picture, but I also really wanted to talk to a woman about their lived experience of poverty. I spoke with Harriet McLaughlin, the Deputy Director of Canada Without Poverty, a nonprofit, nonpartisan charity organization that works on human rights and poverty in Canada. Harriet understands the challenges that women face when they're dealing with poverty. She's a nonprofit exec now, but she spent most of her life being poor. She married early and had kids at a young age. Her story, which you'll hear soon, reminded me of all the jobs my mom worked just to make ends meet. My mom sold books at fairs, she picked worms at night for the bait that's used in fishing, and she worked as a home care worker, all while raising me and my three siblings. We didn't have money for the things that kids want, like gaming consoles and toys, but my mom was resourceful and found fun that was cheap, if not free. Like Harriet did for her kids, my mom found creative ways to allow us to feel normal. Harriet spoke to me by phone from Montreal. Here's her story. I left home when I was 16 years old. It wasn't, uh, it was not a pleasant environment. I grew up with sexual abuse and violence and I really floundered around for a long time and did a lot of healing and then uh, thought, well, what can I do with my life? I realized that I couldn't choose the family that I grew up with, but I could choose how I wanted to be and live in the world. And it took a long, long process to figure a lot of things out. For me, what was important was looking at the causes of how I came to be poor in my life. And I was married at a young age, and I married someone who was very similar to what I grew up with. And uh, so when I realized that my children were seeing the same things that that I saw and that I lived through, I thought, no. And so I sought help with my husband at the time. He didn't want to uh, do counseling together. And so I divorced and was a single parent for a very, very long time and, uh, and lived in poverty for many, many years. After her divorce, Harriet took on the work of raising her kids alone while also getting her education. According to Stats Canada, nearly two in five children in lone parent families lived in a low-income household in 2015. 
the vast majority are raised by their mothers. Like many mothers, Harriet did everything she could to improve her life and those of her children. To do that, she went back to school and eventually found work in the nonprofit world. I asked her how she managed during this big transition in her life. I found that some of the hardest, hardest, hardest times of my life. <laughs> For sure, my early childhood was hard, but as a single parent with three children, working in a nonprofit organization and struggling to make ends meet, it was exceptionally challenging. I lived in a dilapidated housing place where I had a landlord who would make sexual comments toward me, and I lived with sewer rats in my children's beds, my living space, the kitchen. I didn't have a bedroom of my own, so I slept on the couch and I borrowed a neighbor's cat so the cat would sleep on me so the rats wouldn't bite my toes in the middle of the night. And, you know, making really hard choices between, you know, food or paying hydro or got to pay the rent. And I would turn it into something positive. So I'd say, okay, kids, we have slim pickings tonight. And so it would it would mean that in the beginning of the week, I'd buy a chicken on sale and we'd have a chicken dinner. Then the next night it would be chicken salad sandwiches. And then the next couple of nights it would be chicken soup and I'd add in whatever I had in the fridge. And by the last day of that week, it was like, okay, it's slim pickings tonight, kids. And, and they were they were fine with that. And I never had money for vacation. And I guess for me, I didn't want my children to feel like they were poor. I didn't want them to feel like they were not doing what their other friends were doing. And so I tried to find creative ways to give them vacation. So I borrowed a good neighbor's canoe and we uh, paddled across the river where there was a campground. And so we did some camping and I volunteered as a nurse for a summer camp. My son, my oldest son was able to come with me and have the time in the outdoors. So I always tried to find ways that I could buffer my children and uh, allow them to experience things that children who were not poor could experience and, and not feel left out. And and for me, it was it was so amazing when I started, you know, sharing with my children some of the work that I do, and they started hearing some of the podcasts and interviews, and they were going, "Mom, I didn't know we were so poor," and that was really like really uh, rewarding for me to hear because the efforts that I did and all the work that I did to buffer them really worked. I asked her if she remembered a specific experience that she shielded her children from. I guess there was moments that were more profound than others. I mean, there were some some basic day-to-day things like struggling to either buy food or pay rent, but it was other times where it was really notable. I remember when my son was three years old and I didn't have uh, milk for him, so I thought, well, I have five dollars in the bank, so I'll go and get that five dollars and I'll buy milk, which involved also paying for a a bus fare to the bank because it wasn't in my neighborhood, and realized that ATM machines, the automatic teller machines, didn't dispense $5 bills. They expensed only $20 bills. So it meant another bus to an actual physical person teller in a bank. And I asked to withdraw the $5 that I had. And the attitude of with her response was crippling. It was like, well, do you want that all in one bill? I mean, there was that. I remember sitting on the bus once and I had tape on my glasses because I couldn't afford new tape and I had a broken tooth that was noticeable when I uh, when I spoke. And uh, I was wearing clothes that didn't fit me and shoes that were worn out 
people got up from their seats beside me on the bus when I sat down. They got up and moved away from me. Despite all that and many, many other experiences, I have to acknowledge my privilege in being poor. I'm a white, able-bodied person born in Canada, and that afforded me a lot of possibilities, limitations, because I was poor for sure, but much more possibilities than other people who may have been disabled or, um, you know, women of color or somebody new to Canada. So in some ways, I was, you know, fortunate in my poverty. In her life and in her work now, Harriet sees a breadth of women who are dealing with poverty. I wanted to know who she sees being left out and left behind. I think there's a lot of invisibility around single mothers living in poverty. There's a, many who have two or three jobs, they're struggling to pay for childcare and transportation and education and all the school supplies. And, and I mean, there's a lot, a lot of single women across the country. We don't see this, right? We see, we see sometimes these classical pictures of people who might represent laziness, but not necessarily so. I asked her what she thinks is needed to help women climb out of poverty. Especially when we're talking about women, I think that a gender-based, rights-based, you know, national strategy around gender issues would be important. So I think that a lot of the SDGs are, are really interconnected and we're talking about decent work, we're talking about poverty, we're talking about reducing inequalities and, for example, when we're talking about decent work, to have a, a rights-based gender analysis around a national child care and early, early childhood education program or strategies. I'd, I'd look to, you know, a national, a national poverty re- elimination strategy that would base based in human rights and gender analysis. I would have disaggregated data so we would know how different women are experiencing poverty in different areas of the country. I would have policy that would respond to uh, international human rights obligations that Canada signed on to in 1976 that are that intertwine with the, the SDGs. So I would look at the policy level. I would involve people who are living those circumstances of poverty, especially women, that they would be included in the development, monitoring, and implementation of any strategy or policy and develop measurable goals and timelines, do follow-up, and all, and have a budget that supports this kind of policy. So, like, when I think about poverty, and when I particularly think about women's poverty, I think of a river, and I think of people who have fallen through the cracks and they've fallen at the bottom of the river and they go to food banks or they're homeless on the street or or you know they're at the bottom of the river floundering and sputtering in the water and so if we take care of uh, the structural issues and problems with policy and programs at the top of the river then there'll be less people falling through the cracks I mean Canada spends five to six percent of its GDP uh, on maintaining poverty in Canada. So it's it's I think at the top of the river is a is a source place that's important to focus. Being a mom isn't easy. It never is. But it is getting harder for women and families to do what Harriet did for her kids and my mom did for us. The education that back then helped them get out of poverty is only becoming more expensive. 
the food they once fed their kids is also more and more expensive, and in some neighborhoods, harder to find. Transportation, schooling, recreation, physical and mental health care are all a part of the poverty burden. And it's a burden borne disproportionately by women. Canada needs a strategy for women, and it has to include poor women, indigenous women, immigrant women, and racialized women. After all, you can see the health of a community by looking at how the women in it are faring. We're all running the same race. Ideally, we'll get to the finish line together, but we clearly have a long way to go. Canadians love talking about nature, but what about the water that is all around us? Three big oceans, thousands of small lakes, and millions of pounds of pollution. On the next episode, we'll be looking at Goal 14, Life Below Water. I'm Vicky Mochama. No Little Plans comes to you courtesy of Community Foundations of Canada. It is produced by Vocal Fry Studios on behalf of Strategic Content Labs, Canada's content marketing consultancy. Our theme music is by Elcon. You can find our show notes at alliance2030.ca. It's a website created by Community Foundations of Canada to track SDG efforts by communities across Canada. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share as it helps other people find the show. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at No Little Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us as we look at the big plan to reshape the world. <laughs>